Good morning, church family. When I was young, I went through a phase where I was obsessed with castles. I managed to buy and borrow several books that contained the blueprints and diagrams for castles. And I would spend hours poring over the pictures and the illustrations and try to imagine what it would be like to build a castle, to live into a castle, to walk along the parapets and to see the drawbridge and all the different parts of a castle. I was obsessed. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I finally got to go to Europe and actually go on a castle tour. And as uh, my wife can attest, I was completely entranced when I finally got to go into the castles. And we went to ruined castles and restored castles, and it, it, just, it was everything my childhood heart had hoped it would be. You see, I had read the blueprints, and they had told me what it was going to be like. But it wasn't until I was there that I got to see it and see everything that the blueprints had showed me and described to me. And I was not disappointed. In, in the same way, the historical narrative of Noah and the flood is very much a blueprint for everything that's going to come for throughout the rest of Scripture. In a sense, I could take us from this passage in Genesis 6 to any of the books of the Bible. We could go to any book of the Bible, and we would see ripples and hints and pictures of parts of this pattern that we're going to see here this morning in Genesis. Now, we're not going to go to every book of the Bible, so don't worry. I will let you out on time. But... We can go anywhere in Scripture and see this pattern. This pattern namely being sin, rescue, and relationship. This pattern repeats over and over and over. And it's my aim this morning to show you both the historical and literal narrative of Noah building the ark and preparing for the flood, but also what it teaches us about God and how it points to us through the rest of Scriptures. Follow along as I read our text, Genesis 6, 9 through 22. And you'll note in this passage that it once again starts with a genealogy marker, the section break that John has taught us about. Genesis 6, 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, flesh in which there is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come, into, come in and you shall keep them alive and take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you to be eaten then. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. My, what I hope to show you this morning is that this historical narrative of Noah and the flood is the blueprint of the Bible of the problem of sin, 
the rescue, and then the relationship. So let us look first at the sin. Look with me again at verses 11 through 13 as we see the, the problem now, the, the, what it, sin has done to the earth. Verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we see this promised flood, and it's a flood for the whole earth. God doesn't promise a regional flood. He doesn't cause unseasonable rain. He says all of the earth will be flooded. This is a global flood. And what is the thing that is the tipping point for God? God has seen the wickedness in the earth, and something has tipped his hand. Something has, has made his patience run out. What, what words repeated here? You see it in the text? Violence. God says the world is full of violence, and because of the violence, I will bring the flood. And so, as we think about the problem of sin and God's relationship with the wicked, we have to ask ourselves, what is it about violence specifically that's causing God to flood the earth? And I want to give you two reasons why violence is so serious to God. The first is that mankind, in rebellion of God, cannot even begin to hurt or threaten God. Mankind has rebelled against God. We've seen this in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4. But mankind has no ability to hurt God, to insult God, to do anything to harm God. But they have the ability to hurt God's image. They can't hurt God, but they can hurt his image bearers. And so mankind has turned and begun to destroy God's image bearers to spite God. Can't hurt him, but we can hurt each other who bear the image of God. You know, it's, it's, we can't hurt that figure there, but we can destroy his image and deface his image. And you think about all the, the, the images that get defaced nowadays on the internet. People will be mad at somebody, and you can't hurt that person, but you can find ways to slander them and dis, deface their image and, and make a mockery out of them. And this is what we see here. Mankind has begun to turn to violence to try to destroy the image of God. Now, this leads to the second and the major reason why violence is so incredibly bad. Because what we see with the violence is the promise of God is being directly threatened. God has promised that of the line of Seth is going to come a Messiah, a Savior, someone to rescue all of mankind. And there are now two tribes on the earth, the tribe of Cain and the tribe of Seth. And we saw in chapter 4 that the tribe of Cain delights in violence. And if you have one tribe that's delighting in violence and another tribe that is the tribe from which the rescue has come, the tribe of violence may eventually rise up and eliminate or massacre the tribe of Seth and, and break the line. So God is stepping in now to protect his people, to protect all of mankind, to protect his promises. I think a, a helpful analogy to understand what God's doing here is amputation. If somebody were to run up to you with a saw and hack your arm off, that would be a horrible, traumatic experience. You would be like, why did you just chop my arm off? That's horrible. What did you do? What's wrong with you? And yet, if you have a, a blood disease or a, a terrible infection in your arm, and the doctor comes to you and says, if we don't cut your arm off, you will die. You will say, doctor, cut my arm off. Amputate me. Save my life. And then when the doctor chops your arm off, you'll use the other arm to hug him and say, thank you. You've saved my life through amputation. And this is the picture that we see here. God is not lo losing his temper. God is not being angry and vindictive for no reason. 
He sees that the tribe of, of Cain is now growing and directly threatening the, the promises through the tribe of Seth. And so he steps in to intervene and to protect all of mankind by amputating or ending the line of Cain through this flood. And this, this is the pattern that we see when we begin to understand God's wrath. And I want to take some time and really think through with you the issue of the wrath of God and God's relationship with the wicked. Because I think this is something we're often may have unbelievers ask questions, we may have questions in our own heart, something we have to begin to wrestle with. Um, one thing that can be especially helpful if you have questions on uh, God's destroying the wicked in the Old Testament is to consider Deuteronomy 20, 13 through 18. Deuteronomy 20, 13 through 18. God gives Israel laws of warfare. And as he instructs Israel to go into Canaan, he tells them, there are specific people groups that you must wipe them out. You must completely annihilate them. And similar to the, this passage here in Genesis, he says, these people must be completely annihilated. But then he says, there are other people, the tribes of Moab, the tribes around you. You are not to wipe them out. And we have to ask the question, why, why does God want some people to be wiped out and other people not to be wiped out? What is, is God being arbitrary? And as, as you search the Old Testament, one of the pictures that becomes very clear is that the tribes that Jesus, or the tribes that God commands to be wiped out in the Old Testament are, are known and marked by idol worship, by child sacrifice, by murder, by violence. These are violent, evil people who will turn the hearts of Israel away from following God and to practice uh, horrible practices like child sacrifice, these, these murderous practices. And so God steps in and says, for the sake of your families and your children, you must wipe these people out so that they do not corrupt you and turn you into these evil ways. And yet God does not give Israel wanton ability to just wipe out whoever they please. He says, you may attack the soldiers of enemies that attack the nation of Israel, but you may not kill their women and children. You may not burn down their forests. You may not, may not destroy their fields and their cities. You are to fight war in a respectful, defensive manner if the war is coming from outside. God protects human life at everywhere possible. And there's this, this beautiful picture of God taking steps where necessary to preserve his people, to preserve his promise, but never going beyond that, never being rash or vindictive in how he deals with the wicked. And this is the, the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. God is, is never just dismissing a people group, but instead strategically thinking and helping his people to understand their relationship with God. And before we move on, there's one other thing about God's relationship to the wicked, and specifically violent wicked people, that I want to take some time to talk through with you. Look with me, if you would, at Proverbs 1. One of the most important things as we think about God's relationship to the wicked is that our relationship to the wicked is different than God's relationship to the wicked. So God gives us some advice. Listen to Proverbs 1, 10 through 16. Proverbs 1, 10 through 16. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our house with plunder. Throw in your lot with among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the ways with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. And God spells it out very clearly. The people of God are to be distanced 
from the wicked and especially the violent people of this earth. Healthy boundaries are very biblical. This is repeated over and over through Proverbs. We, as God's people, are to have a distance from unbelievers, from people who would lead us down paths of violence, paths of, of, of sin and corruption. We are not to form business deals with unbelievers to rip people off or to harm other bearers of the image of God. We are called as Christians to have a healthy boundary and to have opportunities and relations to share the gospel, of course, but always at a distance where we're the ones who are sharing our hope with them, not being ensnared in sin with them. We are never called to go with a sinner into sin. I think it's a very important point that we must understand, and the book of Proverbs is packed with wisdom on this topic. But, and here's the interesting part, and I bring this up, while we're called to live at a distance from sin, and especially from violence, that's not how, what God does. And I, I want us to think about this from several places. Look with me, if you would, at Luke 8. In Luke 8, Jesus seeks out a very, very violent man. He takes his disciples. They get in a boat. They row across the, uh, across the lake. They're not going to a nice hotel. They're not going to a nice city or the good part of town. They're not even going to the bad part of town. They're going to the tombs. And there in among the tombs is the screams of a demon-possessed man, a man naked and covered in filth, a man who has many demons, a man who breaks every chain that has ever tried to restrain him, a man who terrifies us, who every single one of us would look at and say, I'm not going near that person. Never mind being his friend. I will not even get near this guy. I'm not going into those tombs. I can only imagine how terrified the disciples were as they approached this man. And this is the man Jesus seeks out. And Jesus casts out the demons. He restores his mind to him. He saves him. He rescues him. And of course, this man who's had demons for his whole life now begs Jesus, Jesus, just take me with you. Let me follow along behind everybody else. And Jesus doesn't let him do that. Look with me, Luke 8, 39. Listen to what Jesus tells this man. Starting in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not saving him so that he can go stand in the back of the line and, you know, I'll bring you out for like a 10-minute intro to the beginning of my presentation and then sideline you. He commissions this man to go be a missionary and a witness and a herald to his village. Jesus has big plans for this man's life that far transcend just telling people about how that one time Jesus cast out my demons. He is now going and being the missionary and the witness and the herald to his whole city. A whole city is going to come to know Jesus because the man that everyone in the city was terrified of has been made whole. And here he is preaching Jesus' name. Jesus makes a preacher out of a man that everyone would have been sure is too crazy, too messed up to even, even consider befriending. And yet God, in, in his wisdom, uses Jesus to call this man to ministry. And it's, it's such an amazing picture. But this isn't even the only time this happens. This happens throughout Scripture. Think about, think about Moses, who's, who's writing the book of Genesis. In, in, the, in Exodus 2, we're given an account of a 40-year-old Moses who's come into his own. He's been educated by the Egyptians, and he takes it upon himself to murder an Egyptian. And he kills him in cold blood. He's a violent man, and he commits a violent act, and he's found out, and he goes into exile. 
And for another 40 years, he's convinced he's blown it. And it is only then at the burning bush that God calls him and says, no, even though you're 80 years old, even though you've committed violent acts and you're a murderer, I am going to use you to rescue my people. You are the one who is going to, to bring the nation of Israel and establish them. And God calls the murderous, despondent Moses with his stutter and his stammer to be the one to lead his people. And I can't help but wonder, as Moses is thinking about his own life and his own violent tendencies, his own cowardice, and his own corruption that he struggled with, as he's writing about violent men being destroyed by the flood, if he understands, this could have been me, this is what I would have deserved, but God intervened and God has changed things for me. We could also talk about David, another murderer who God uses to write most of the Psalms and, and writes parts of the Bible. And then, of course... We can't go on without talking about Paul. Look with me, if you would, at Acts 9 just for a moment. In Acts 9, verse 1, Saul, who will be called Paul, is described this way. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Saul is angry, he is self-righteous, he is vengeful, and he is ready to kill as many Christians as he can get his hands on. He is a violent, horrible person. But God steps in and changes him on the road. He, he blinds him and he calls him. And he, Paul is, Saul, who becomes Paul, is so confused. And the church, the church is, is terrified. The church at Damascus is like, we don't want to talk to this guy. This guy's the guy who wants to murder us. We don't want to be his friend. And Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure about that? Are you sure you want me to go talk to this Saul guy? You know he wants to murder me, right? Surely, God, you can't use Saul He's the murdering guy. But look, I want you to catch this. Look how God describes Saul. Look with me at verse 15 of, of Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God delights in using Saul. God is excited to use Saul. Here's a man who is murdering and ready to destroy the image bearer of God. This wicked, violent man deserving of death. And God says, no, I am going to make him the, my witness before kings, before Israel, before the Gentiles. My kingdom is going to be spread by this chosen instrument. And, and this will be my champion. I am going to use him. The man that everyone in the church is sure is the most disqualified man possible is the man that God delights in. The man who's going to write, the, write most of the, a, a huge chunk of the New Testament is written by this murderous, venomous man that God, God turns him around. And oftentimes you may hear people say something like, God can redeem your story. And that's true. But my fear is that sometimes when we say God will redeem your story, what we are implicitly implying is that, that God can help a, a former drug addict help minister to other drug addicts or a former alcoholic minister to other alcoholics. Or God can use whatever sin you've struggled with to help other people who have the same struggle. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that. God doesn't save Paul so that he can help victims of violence and abuse. He saves Paul to minister to kings, to stand and give witness, to reach and plant church after church after church, and to reach unreached people groups. Paul is his, his bright champion. And again and again, God delights in using people who are weak. And I'd like you to apply that to your own story. As you think about where God has brought you and what you've come through, 
And whether it's sins that have been committed against you or sins that you've committed, ways that you've hurt people. I, I'd be willing to wager that there's no one in this room who's murdered as many people as Paul. If God can use Paul's story, if God can use Paul to plant churches, to reach the lost, to build up the church and to encourage the saints, he can use you and your story, not just to, to help other people who struggle. Yes, he can do that, but to build his kingdom. You can be valuable and used by God, and God can delight in you as a chosen instrument. And what a wonderful freeing truth that is. As, as, as we wrestle with where we've been and what we've been through and the years we've wasted and the, the, the things that we've done that seemingly disqualify us, there's this wonderful truth that God delights in using people that the world looks at and says, there's no hope for you. And God steps in and there's hope. So now that we've considered God's relationship with the wicked, and we've seen the way that God brings strategic wrath, but also brings abundant mercy to them. Let's look at our second point here as we look at the rescue. Back to, as we head back to uh, Genesis 6, look with me, if you would, at verses 14 through 17, and let's consider the ark for a few minutes. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. It's height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the doors on the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. We see here described a very real and a very literal ark that is to be constructed. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of wood gopher wood was, but we do know that it was an actual wood that would have been available. And the pitch would have been the waterproofing material put on the ark. Now, a few observations about the ark. The ark is not a boat. It doesn't have propulsion, and it does not have any sort of steering mechanism. There is no rudder. There's no sails. The big ship steering wheel thing, the tiller, doesn't have one of those. So if, you're, if your picture of Noah's ark has a steering wheel, it's, it's inaccurate. There's, there is no steering. And that's, that, that is an important thing, and we'll get to that in just a second. There's no sails. There is, there's no propulsion on this. The ark was designed to float and to keep everybody inside safe. It's also not a zoo. You know, we sometimes call the ark a floating zoo. It's not really a zoo because there's no little plaques. There's no, like, nice observation. They didn't build cute little enclosures for each of the animals. There wasn't, like, a little demonstration pen. It was very much designed to protect and save the animals, uh, not to show them off. So the, in terms of the spacing and how it was designed, the ark was practical. It was feasible. It needed to carry all of the land animals, all of the birds. There's, a one, there's wonderful books and resources in our library if you want to read a full study of how the ark would have been constructed, rooms for the animals. Um, the ark could often have carried smaller baby animals as they grew up. It could have carried a lot of the animals that hibernated. And if you're really interested in biomass and tonnage of packed food and the amount of potable water needed, go read the books in the library. They're very, very good. I've spent some time looking over them. They're great. But that's not what I'm here to talk about this morning. If you want to read about biomass and tonnage of food, you know, read the studies yourself. They're, they're, they're better than I can explain it. Instead, I want us to think about what does the Bible why does Moses have this in the Bible? What does is, what is the ark point us to? What is, what is the meaning here behind the ark? Yes, the ark is a literal event, but it's pointing to something much bigger than just the ark. The pattern of the ark, 
quite simply, quite clearly, is look to God and live. If you are on the ark, you will live. If you are not on the ark, you will die. The ark is the only way, the exclusive way of salvation. And this is the pattern over and over again. God's salvation is found in one place only. We see this a lot of places in Scripture. I'll give you a couple. The first one that comes to mind, maybe, is uh, Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel are attacked by a bunch of venomous snakes. And the snakes bite them and kill them. And they cry out to God. And God tells Moses to raise up a staff with a bronze serpent on it. And if they look to the staff, they will live. If they have faith, they will live. And we see both something being built and raised up, an action of looking to the snake, and then, of course, by faith, salvation and rescue comes. Now, a more, even more obvious, uh, more obvious thing that may come to mind would be the Ark of the Covenant. It is also a wooden vessel. But instead of being covered in pitch to make it waterproof, it was instead covered in gold. And it was a sign of protection for Israel. The Israelites would look to their Ark and know that God is with them that they were God's people and that God had promised to protect them and care for them as long as they obeyed and as long as they followed him. And this ark would be in the middle of their camp and it would remind them that God is there. But sadly, they did not fulfill those commands and they did not remove, they did not remove the Canaanites from the land and they allowed peace treaties to be made and survivors who slowly, slowly corrupted them and taught them sinful and violent ways and they turned from God. And the Ark of the Covenant goes missing after the book of Jeremiah. And by the time of the temple being rebuilt by Ezra and then remodeled by Herod, by the time of Jesus, the Holy of Holies, where the, where, the, where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, it's empty. There's nothing in that room. And there's a curtain there blocking it that kind of hides the fact that there's nothing there. But there is, they, they no longer have that Ark. And it raises this big question. Where are we supposed to look for rescue? Where is our hope? Where is our promise? Where is God with us? If God with us is not in the temple anymore, where is God with us? I hope you know where I'm going with this. Where is God with us? Well, he was on another wooden vessel. He was on the cross, raised up, and there God with us, the true Ark of the Covenant, the true picture of Jesus. Jesus said, called his body the temple. You will tear this temple down in three days I will restore it. Pointing to himself, pointing to his body, fulfilling both Noah's Ark and the, the Ark of the Covenant. They were all pointing us to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of similarities. There's a couple of differences, too, that I want to point out to you. Look with me, if you would, at Jesus' dying breath in Matthew 27. Turn with you, if you would, to Matthew 27. We're looking at verses 50 and 54 of Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep or raised. And coming out of the tomb where it with, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquakes and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And in Jesus' dying moment, several things happen that are very different than what happened at the ark. And I want to point them out. There's, there's several differences here. First off, the, the ark was temporary. 
Noah boarded the ark for the period of the flood, 40 days, 40 nights, and then about a year for the waters recede. And then the ark is going to be emptied, and then there's going to be this question of what's God going to do. And yet, when Jesus accomplishes his work on the cross and says it is finished, it is finished. This is, this is the permanent solution that the ark was pointing to. But I want you to notice something else. When the ark is going to be raised up in the waters, God has promised us that everyone who is not on the ark will die. Death will reign for 40 days and 40 nights on the earth for everyone except those on the ark. And yet, when Jesus dies on the cross, the opposite happens. You'll notice the tombs are open. Why are the tombs opened? Why do all of a sudden a bunch of people temporarily come back to life the moment Jesus dies? Have you ever thought about that? It's an, it's an important little detail that sometimes we miss and all the other amazing details. The tombs are open because death tried to swallow Jesus and death choked. A couple years ago, I walked into the break room at work. One of my coworkers was getting some coffee and all of a sudden he started choking. He dropped his coffee cup on the floor. He started, his face turned red. His eyes started to swell and to cry. And he's doing this thing and gesturing frantically for me. So I ran over and did the Heimlich on him. He said, Jared, you just saved my life. But when he was choking and when he was dying, he lost control of everything. He dropped everything. He started crying uncontrollably. And that, in a sense, is what's happening to death here. Death tried to swallow Jesus, and death choked, and it lost control of all of the dead. That's why the dead are temporarily raised here, to show us that as, as Jesus descended into Sheol, the place of death, death had a really bad time. When Jesus says he conquered death, it wasn't a fair fight. It wasn't, it wasn't, death didn't even have a chance. Jesus went there and he choked death. Death lost and lost bad. It should have been no surprise to the, to the disciples and his followers that three days later he will come out of the tomb. And that's what the, these open graves are pointing to. The fact that Jesus, King Jesus, is going to beat death just as he said he would. And as, as the tombs are open, it's a hint that the tomb, there will be an open tomb after Jesus has fulfilled his purpose. And there's this, this beautiful picture here. We also see, of course, the, uh, the ripping of the great curtain. This is both showing us that the ark is no longer, that rescue is no longer just for the Jews in Jerusalem. But as Jesus promised the, the woman at the well, we can now worship at every corner of the world and that, that God's rescue is for all people now. And it also shows us that we can now finally able to approach God, through Jesus Christ, we can approach God that that divide, that separation was accomplished just as was promised all the way back to Adam and Eve. And there's this, this beautiful picture of all of these, these, these promises coming true in the moment of Jesus' death and these wonderful pictures as we meditate on what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, now that we've, we've looked at this, there's one other key difference between the cross and the ark that I want us to catch. On the ark... Noah brought his family, and in doing so, preserved all of human life. None of us would be here if Noah's family wasn't on the ark with him. We have life because of Noah. But he also brought all of the animal kingdom, every single animal, specifically each animal, two by two by two by two by two, down the line. Hundreds and hundreds of animals. He made sure they were all there. Why? So that we could have the blessings of creation. If Noah had left all the animals behind, none of us would have pets. None of us would have zoos. None of us would look into the sky and see birds. All of the animals would have perished. We have the blessing of God because Noah made the sacrifice to sit in a stinky, nasty ark for an entire year and to shovel poop for an entire year for the entire animal kingdom. I can only imagine how stressful that would be, but the only reason we have our pets 
and our animals is because he was willing to make that sacrifice. So when you, when you think about your pets, or you think about birds or animals, you can be thankful for Noah's sacrifice and rescuing them. When you think about your lives, you can be thankful that Noah had the faith to get on the ark and to trust God with his life and all of, all of humanity. But Jesus did not take animals onto the cross. But I would argue that he took something even more smelly, even more vile than the worst family of skunks. He took the sins of the demon-possessed man, the woman at the well, the blind man, the lame man, his prideful disciples who couldn't stop for five minutes to, to stop falling asleep and arguing over who was greatest. He took each and every one of their sins. He took the wretched sins of a man named Jared Pulse. He took the wretched sins of each and every one of us to the cross. And just as Noah had to bring each and every animal, two by two, of its kind and forget none of them, so Jesus took the specific sins for each and every one of his people to the cross. Jesus didn't die for sins in general or the concept of sins. Jesus paid for the sins of his people specifically. So that when he says it is finished and it is done and it is paid for, it is finished and it is done and it is painful. Noah didn't bring some animals. He brought all the animals specifically by name. And Jesus died for all of his people and their sins by name. And we can look to the cross and have assurance that what Jesus has accomplished for us has been done and that his righteousness is imparted to us. I said, because of Noah, we have we still have life in our species and we have the blessings of God. Because of Christ and his specific work, we have eternal life and we have all the blessings and righteousness of his kingdom. He has provided us a double blessing just as Noah provided the double blessing. And we, we, we see that, that, that beautiful parallel. Jesus did so much more than Noah did accomplishing the plan of God. So now that we've looked at the, the problem of wickedness and the ark, I want to look again at the end of this passage at God's relationship with his people. Now, we've already established several verse, in several verses that God walked with Noah, that God was with Noah, that they had a relationship. But look with me, if you would, at verses 17 through 22 in Genesis 6. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wives and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort onto the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. I'll tell you, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve you as food for you and for them." Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. What we see here is that God wants to be in a covenant relationship with Noah. It's not enough for God that Noah and God are walking together, that Noah and God are friends. God wants a covenant relationship. And so we have to ask the question, what is a covenant? And a covenant is a binding declaration of agreement, but I would argue with a sacred purpose. It's something more meaningful uh, a covenant is more than just a contract. Let me, let me explain it this way. Currently, I have an employer, and I have a contract with them. I provide them work. They provide me money and benefits. If at any point I don't like the work or the benefits and the money, I can say, see you later, put in my two weeks, and I leave, and I get a new job. 
If at any time they decide that they don't like my work or they don't feel like paying me, they can say, we're laying you off, see you later. And we can break the covenant, we can break that contract at any time. A covenant is not a contract. It can't just be broken at any time. You can't just decide, eh, never mind, this was a bad idea. The, the best example that we have of a covenant also, ironically, starts with two people walking together. That's the covenant of marriage. When a young man and a young woman begin to walk together and begin to delight in each other's company, a thought should occur in their heart of, I don't want to just see you every other Tuesday when we're both available. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want death to death do us part. And so vows are taken for richer or poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. And in, in a marriage, there's this beautiful covenant that goes beyond a contract. It's not just, hey, let's get together, and if this doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's, no, we want to spend our lives together, ideally till death do us part. There's this, this beautiful, sacred vow that, that, that encapsulates and characterizes the covenant. And, and this, this is given to us as a picture of what God is meaning when he says he wants to be in a covenant with Noah. Another covenant that might come to mind is our church covenant. If you were a member of this church, you have taken a vow and you have joined with us as brother and sister. And we have, we have covenantal vows that we keep to each other, to love each other, to support each other, to care for each other, to pray for each other, to laugh together, to cry together, to care for one another's souls. And you'll note at the end of our church covenant that if, you choose to, if, if circumstances take you away, you are called to go and join as quickly as possible another church and another church covenant. In a very real sense, our church covenant is also till death do us part. The idea being that you want to be part of identifying in God's people for the rest of your life, as long as you can. And it's that level of seriousness, of a vow before God and publicly before man that, that is encapsulated in a church covenant. And that's why it's something that we should take seriously and not something that's just flippantly joining the same way you would join Costco or you know, join a, a, a local you know, rotary club. A church covenant is something beautiful and serious, and there, there's encapsulated in that being recognized in God's people. So what can we learn, though, from Noah's specific covenant? Because let's be honest, it's a temporary covenant. No one in this room is called to build an ark. There's judgment coming, but it's not going to be in the form of a flood. You're not called to build an ark. This, the flood lasted for a year, and Noah had to get off at one point. But this covenant, like I said earlier, is pointing to a better covenant. There is another permanent covenant, the covenant of Jesus' blood on the cross. Our relationship with Jesus, when we become Christians, is a covenantal relationship. And Jesus says, you are my people, and I have paid for you, and I have bought you. If you will trust in me and you will follow me, you will be mine, and my blood will atone for you. And there's this, this beautiful picture of the covenant. That's the relationship that God wants to have with us, that Jesus wants to have with us. Jesus doesn't want to date you. He wants to be in a covenant relationship with you. And that is so important for us to understand as we, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to other people. It's not come experience God and come see what God's like. It's be in a relationship with God. Understand that he wants to be your God and you be his people. And it, it's a beautiful and sacred thing. An interesting thing to note too with the, with the covenant of Noah is it is a works-based covenant. Noah had to build the ark. He didn't steer it. It was a life raft, not a cruise ship. And it was God's ark, not his ark. He built it according to God's design, and he, by faith, got aboard the ark. But he had to trust and have faith that once he got on there and the doors shut, that he would be safe from the flood and that those floodwaters would go down and that he would have enough food to last him until it was time to get off. 
He stepped in by faith. So while it may be in some ways a works-based, his, his will and his mind and his abilities were engaged, ultimately, the covenant of Noah, like all covenants of the Bible, is based in faith in God and that God will do what he says, that God will be his rescuer. And here we see this beautiful, simple picture of, of man's will, man's ability, Noah stepping in and devoting his life to building this ark and then trusting God and going on board and realizing that it is all by God's, God's ability that the covenant is going to be fulfilled. And so we, when asked the question of, you know, is it, is it God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? We can answer yes. And here we see both of those things engaged. You can't, God didn't magically materialize an ark and then shove Noah on board and slam the door and say, you're going to go, you're going to go and save humanity. Go for it. He commanded him to build the ark and to have faith year after year as he constructed this ark. We don't know exactly how long it took, but it, we can assume it took, it probably took decades. And it cost not just his time and his effort, but those of his, of his sons. He had to explain to his sons, hey, we're going to spend the next decades of our life building a large ark. And everybody's going to call you crazy, and it's going to take a lot of time, and you're going to have to grow and pack a lot of food and set, store up water, and it's going to look ridiculous. But we're going to do this because God has told me that this is our, our means of obedience and our way to be saved. And so I want to end this morning with some points of application. What do we do since we're not called to build an ark? And the first point of application I would have for you is that we're called to know God in covenant and not casually. Like I said, God doesn't want to just date you or hang out with you for 15 minutes over coffee when you're not too busy. He wants to know us through the covenant of Christ's redeeming purchase. He wants us to be found in him, and that covenant is so important. This brings me to my second point. We're called to be baptized. If you are trusting in Christ, you are called to demonstrate that through baptism. If you remember 1 Peter 3, if you want to look at that verse again, Verse Peter 3, 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now don't be confused. He's not saying here that the act of baptism saves you. What he's saying is if you have been saved, there will be an act of baptism. You will want to identify yourself publicly with the people of God. You don't accidentally build an ark. Nobody's woken up one day and going, oops, built an ark in the backyard. Just as the same as you're not accidentally choosing to, to go through the waters of baptism. This is an intentional act of the human will to say, God has worked in my life, God has opened my eyes, God has changed me, and I want to be identified with God's people. And, and this is what baptism is. Baptism, it, baptism is something serious to engage with, to be, to be found in. It's not something to do flippantly, like I said. The same comes with joining a church. It's not something you just do on a whim or casually or because a pastor told you to, but something that as you understand your faith and understand that this is how Jesus has called us to obey something that you pursue. And if you have questions on baptism or questions on Jesus, I'd encourage you to, to disciple and to study with other brothers and sisters in the faith and those who would be delighted in, in helping you to understand your faith better. And if, if you have questions about this, come talk to John or myself. We would love to, to get you connected with somebody who can help you begin to think seriously through these issues as you pursue obedience to God through the waters of baptism. Understanding that, yes, baptism doesn't save you, but it is the way that God has given us so that we can demonstrate that we are, yes, his people. And finally, for believers, we are called to be useful to the kingdom. We're called to live sacrificially. God doesn't save us 
so that he can put us on a trophy case. He calls us to be useful. God, God saved and used Noah and said, Noah, you're going to be giving your life to building this ark. When Jesus saved the demon-possessed man, he said, you're going to be my herald in that city. You don't get to just hang out in the back of the room. You are going as my herald. He saves Paul and sends him to the nations to speak before kings and to suffer well. And God calls each and every one of us on a mission, on a great commission, to raise up disciples, to, to encourage and build up the church, to get the gospel, as, as John prayed earlier, to 3.2 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have a calling. We have a mission that has been given before us. And, and the question that we have to ask each and every one of ourselves, as, as we think through the scriptures, we think through what our faith really means, is are we living in any way that is sacrificial, that points to the realities of our faith? If we believe this, is it changing our life? So look, I would encourage you, look at your budget, the way you spend your time, your major in college, the jobs that you take, the careers that you pursue. Is it being done for the sake of the kingdom, or is it just because it was convenient and it makes you money and it makes you happy? Is your life marked by anything that shows that you really believe this and you are, you are passionate for the spreading of the gospel? That doesn't mean that every one of us is called to be a missionary. That doesn't mean every one of us will go overseas, though I pray that some from our congregation would. But are you living in a way where you're able to, to give generously to those who are going overseas? Are you living in a way that builds up and encourages the church? Do you make time in your schedule to disciple and to study God's word with others and to see them encouraged and exhorted and to grow? Do you help, as the Great Commission says, to make disciples who make disciples? Are you part of God's plan or do you just want to stand in the back like the demon-possessed man did? Are, are, you, are you on mission for the gospel, not because it saves, not because it impresses Jesus, not to earn your salvation, but does the faith and the hope and the joy that we have in Christ inspire your heart to want to do something? Are you doing something with the joy that God has put into your heart? Friends, we live in violent, wicked times. The problem of sin is all around us. Violence has continued since the time of the flood. The flood did not wipe out all violence. But praise God we serve a God who overcomes violence and uses broken people to accomplish his plan. I urge you to trust in Jesus and in the power of his work on the cross for your own salvation. As Noah looked to the ark, so we must look to the cross. God doesn't want us to just acknowledge his existence, but to be in relationship with him. My prayer today is that if any of you do not know Jesus savingly, that you will find forgiveness of sin and righteousness in Jesus. And for those who know Jesus, I pray that you would grow in our relationship with God and with each other. Join with me, if you would, in prayer and a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you did not wipe our race out when we deserve to be wiped out by a flood. Thank you, Lord, for preserving Noah and his family, for bringing all of the animals with him so that we could continue to enjoy him even to this day. Thank you, Lord, that you protected your people in the desert even as they sinned against you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, and to die a martyr's death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we can look to the cross and know that our sins are paid for. Thank you that it is finished by your work and not our work. Lord, I could never earn my salvation. None of us could. We know that our salvation is assured because of Jesus. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to live on a mission to share this wonderful, beautiful good news for you. 
I pray that each and every one of our hearts would be stirred to love you more. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray, amen.